Ayers on the Road, value-based parenting and life balance ideas from world-traveling family coaches. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. Hi, welcome back to Ayers on the Road. And we are definitely on the road, or at least have been in the air. Yes, what a good name for the show. We're broadcasting today from London, England. We're looking out on a beautiful park. It's a sunny day here. We're part of this heat wave that you may have read about going on in Europe, and it's going to get up to 90 degrees tomorrow, which for London is very Unheard rare. Unheard of. <laughs> and we just came from um, Zurich, well, south of Zurich, and actually higher in the mountains, so it should have been cooler, but it was 98 degrees. Wow. And it was even 95 in Russia. We have been, this is a heat, this is a historic heat wave in, in, uh, in all of Europe, but happy news, uh, in two days we're going to Wimbledon and it's going to be cool. It's going to be back down in the 60s where it usually is in England this time of year and it's going to be blustery and people are going to bring their umbrellas because Part of the tradition of Wimbledon is that it rains a lot. Oh, is there rain in the <laughs> forecast? I didn't see it. Well, that. they never know for sure. They never know. <laughs> but um, we do have to just give a little shout out to uh, the chocolate and the waffles in Brussels. Oh, my. We had so much fun there eating chocolate. We actually spoke with a terrific group of people there. It was a church group, and we really enjoyed that. But it was one of those things where we weren't expecting what we got. Not for that audience, but I mean with the Brussels. I mean, it's a wonderful place. Chocolate, well, you know, Belgium. Wow. Well, we'd been to Belgium before, but we'd never fully appreciated it. The food is so great. The, uh, the prices are actually great. And you can't forget Bruges, this wonderful town that we had a chance to slip out to. It's called the Venice of northern Europe and it's built on water pretty much or there's canals all through the city and it's just gorgeous and chocolate abounds. <laughs> yes, everywhere. And then we went over to Antwerp and Antwerp is, um, instead of every store being a chocolate store, every, every store is a diamond store. <laughs> yes, apparently everybody in the world knows that but me. I was surprised. We went there. You were just smiling the whole time, though, Linda. Yes, for sure. We went, we, actually, I wasn't smiling. We went to this fabulous train station there as where we uh, went by train, but we actually went to do to see the Rubens house, which was oh, yeah. fabulous art. For and the old Rubens. master's museum. But it was a Monday. And it was closed. <laughs> so darn, we just went back and had a good time in Brussels. If you're ever in Europe and you want to see some special things, don't plan it for Monday because that's the day off. And incidentally, Linda, that that's, reminds me how much things have changed here in London. We lived in London for four years and, and it was back a long time ago. And one of the things that was interesting about London and England in those days is that Sunday, everything was closed down. I mean, you could not buy a loaf of bread on Sunday. No, that's right. And the final of Wimbledon was on a Saturday. The final of the British Open Golf Tournament was on a Saturday. Nothing happened on Sunday. It was just a peaceful, calm day. People spend it with their families. 
not not even a religious thing, just a cultural thing, just a societal thing. But it's gone the way of the rest of the world, and um, you know, everything is on Sunday now, and the day off is Monday. So don't go places on Monday, or it will be closed. Maybe they're just all having their family home evenings, but you know, you never know. But the the thing is, we love Europe. We have really enjoyed it so much, and especially, we love being in Zurich and. Um, in Switzerland because that is where our son, daughter-in-law, and an adorable granddaughter live. And we had such a fabulous time with them going up the trams and and being on those mountaintops and we got a chance to see their new hut. They bought oh, a hut. yeah, boy, oh boy. If you've ever read Heidi, <laughs> imagine the grandfather's hut. That is what it looks like. It's And plus a barn. It was so fun to see it, but it's right up in the ski area, the gorgeous spot in Switzerland. Well, I like watching you while we're doing these radio shows, honey, because these podcasts, because you look so excited. <laughs> <laughs> and whenever she talks about her grandkids, boom, there's that special smile that's reserved for them and of course in London we've got two little grandsons Moses and Gabriel but today they're up in Norway they're on a they're in the fjords of Norway and we are in their flat in London but we saw them on the way through and and we'll see them soon in the summer isn't it something you know what those of us who have grandkids and those of us who have extended families we take for granted some things that we should just be so grateful for. First of all, that we can travel fairly easily and fairly inexpensively related to, you know, air travel is actually cheaper now in many parts of the world than it was 20, 30 years ago. You can get around, you can see people, but more than that, you know, you can Marco Polo them, you can FaceTime them, you can, you know, be on them, uh, any time you can look in on extended family the world has shrunk so much and it's a blessing for families oh it really is i remember my cousin having a daughter who moved to canada and she cried for days and days and days because she thought she wouldn't see her for so long and actually i don't think she saw her for about 10 years because it was just this is back in the day yeah it was just impossible and now it is so fantastic we have a son that just came from new york city to san diego and they were on this plane with their string of little kids they have three little kids six and a baby. We were FaceTiming with them. We were watching them struggle with these kids. And we thought, oh my gosh, that's so expensive. But no, it was $75 oh. a seat. <laughs> but they had to stop in four different places. I mean, you have to know how to work the system to make it work. But when you really want to travel and you really have a lot of kids, there is a way. So we just love families. We love talking about families each week, and we love talking about marriage now, and we're right in the middle of this little mini-series on the eight myths of marriage. In fact, we were talking about that the other day with this large group of, of parents and marriage partners in Brussels, and how, how often it can be the misperceptions about marriage or the over-expectations or the inaccurate idea of what marriage should be and what it can be, those kind of myths, they're not just 
problematic because they're not true. They're problematic because they undermine marriages. People expect something that's not realistic or they have in mind something that is wrong and it hasn't been exposed. And so, you know, this book of ours is coming out this month. It's our 50th wedding anniversary. And we're just so happy that we waited that long <laughs> to write a marriage book. And even then, we, we were more confident writing about myths, things that are wrong or shouldn't be in marriage, than we were about trying to preach about what a great marriage is, although we love our marriage. And part of the reason we love it is we've gone through so much to get where we are. <laughs> <laughs> we certainly have. You've probably never spoken to anyone who has disagreed more on how to do things, when to do things, why to do things, and where to do things than we have. So um, we have learned a lot through the years. So here from London today, let us present to you Marriaging Myth number six. And it has an interesting name. We call it the test drive myth. And we call it that for good reason. And it's kind of appropriate that we're in Europe to present this one because this myth has even a greater toehold in Europe right now than it does in the United States. I think so. So, Linda, go ahead. Read myth number six. Well, this is the myth. And then Richard always tells the truth. <laughs> so he's going to tell the truth about it. Okay, the myth is you wouldn't buy a car until you've taken a test drive. And it's unwise to make a marriage commitment before you have lived together long enough to know if it'll work. Now, <laughs> to some people that sounds ridiculous because, you know, you believe in commitment, you believe in marriage, you believe in even what is thought of as an extreme position today that intimacy and sex should wait until marriage. Boy, that's a minority view in the world today. So to some of you, this is just a myth. You recognize it from the very get-go. But to most of the world right now, this is the traditional wisdom. Hey, you wouldn't buy a car until you'd tested it out. You shouldn't take the foolhardy, risky step of making a marriage commitment until you've tried it. Live together for a year or two. Find out if it works. Make sure you're compatible. Make sure there's not something you didn't know about this woman or this guy and get it sorted out. Then, if you really feel like it's past all those tests, go ahead and get married. Well, here's the problem. All the statistics show just the opposite of that. In fact, the most dramatic way to say it is those who are now cohabiting and not married have less than half as much chance of still being together in 10 years as those who moved in as a married couple who made the commitment first. And it's kind of, you know, there's a kind of a quick way of saying it that maybe stays in our mind. Instead of thinking that you need to try something out and have some hard times before you make a commitment, turn that around. And the real truth is, it's the commitment that will get you through the hard times. That's the way to think about it. Well, and we're not saying this because we think people are stupid that do that, or that we don't or like we're them, judging. or that we're judging them. We have a lot of friends, not really our age, but young friends, who are cohabiting, and we, 
We really adore them. They're fantastic people. We want them to get married as soon as we possible. We want them to. We were doing a TV show not too long ago, and the guy who always mics us up, I knew he was cohabiting with this darling girl because I'd met her, and they have so much fun together. And afterwards, we said, come on, get married. And he said, you know, we're just having too much fun. We don't have time to stop and get married. Wow. And, you know, there are just a lot of things going on. Um, in people's lives and they don't realize the value of putting marriage first. Here's the corresponding truth in the words that we've put it in in this new book. It is the commitment that will make a marriage work. Real security comes from promising and implementing complete allegiance, not from conditional, tentative, try it and see. Now when you start thinking about it that way, it's not surprising those statistics we gave earlier. If you're, if you're a couple cohabitating, no matter how much in love you are, if there's no commitment there and no real absolute firm vow of marriage yet in your life, then the problem is that when a big issue comes up, when a big disagreement comes up, when a big flare-up in your compatibility Or, or occurs, even when children come up. Or even when children come, you know, and you're not... If, if there's still this tentative feeling in your mind and it gets really tough, it's so easy to say, ah, well, we tried, didn't work, you know, and you're done. Whereas if the commitment's there, if the marriage vow is there, if you've really taken it seriously, you don't consider splitting up. You just say, "Well, let's work through this. We knew this. We knew this had happened. Let's figure it out." So, as you can tell, we're advocating for the truth, and we're trying to explode this myth. This test drive myth is a big myth, and it affects a lot of the world in a negative way. So, we're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we're going to tell you some sub myths that sort of flow out of this and create problems. And so hang on, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Ayers on the Road. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. And we're back. We are in London today talking about London a little bit. It's a fabulous place to be because especially we have a daughter and a son-in-law and two kids here, but also Brussels, also Moscow, also Zurich. We've really been around this week, but we are mostly talking about marriaging myth number six, which is the test drive myth. Now we've talked about the myth in the first half. Now we're talking about some sub-myths and some truths that go with those. So since I'm kind of the bad guy, Linda, I'll read the sub-myths and you read the truth, okay? Okay. It'll go from false to true, me to you. All right, sub-myth number one. Formal commitments really don't matter. We don't need some license or certificate or some ink on a paper to be in love and to live together. We just don't need any of that. Well, the truth that goes with that, we think, Formerly married couples have twice as high a chance of being together in 10 years than those without ink on the paper. And I, we mentioned that in the first half. That's a pretty compelling statistic. It really is. Here's sub-myth number two. The longer you wait and the older you are when you get married, the better your marriage will be. Whoa. 
Well, I have a little comment about that when I read the truth. There is no one size fits all or one ideal age for marriage. It's more about perspective and preparation and commitment than it is about how old you are. Now, this is a tricky one, isn't it, Linda? It is. Because yes. we're not advocating really, really early marriage. In fact, several of our children didn't get married until their late 20s. We had 27, 20, two 28s, I think, and a 30. And I have to admit that it was probably a little bit harder for them because they'd been independent for all those years. We also have a 23 and maybe a 24. I mean, it really is quite remarkable when what happens when you get married when you're babies. But the, but the <laughs> you myth... Know, when you're just so young. But, but again, the you myth is it's always better to wait longer, and that just isn't always true. Um, we have a wonderful grandson who got home from an LDS mission and got married in what, mm, six, six months? months. <laughs> yeah. But to a girl that's two years younger than him. So they're babies, but are they doing great? They're doing great. And they were meant for each other. I mean, you, they, you find the right person, go for it. I mean, it really is amazing. And then we have another grandson who's been dating a girl for two years, and I just really think this is going to work. But... He's 19 and she's 18. Whoa. <laughs> but they're saying, no, we're going to wait till we finish college. Anyway, but it's about preparation and about commitment. And that really ties in with the, the third sub-myth. The more relationships I have, the more likely I will be to find the right one, the one that will last. Boy, that we've run into that so often. People want to not only have relationships, but try out different partners. And, you know, kind of the process of elimination and so on. And uh, truth is... Several uncommitted relationships will never add up to one committed one. Unless that's what you decide that you're going to do, to be committed to it. And, uh, oh man, so many people are looking for perfection and it takes forever to find, or maybe sometimes not at all, to find the person that you really can feel great with. I think no matter who you marry, and certainly some marriages are less uh, trouble than others, <laughs> <laughs> but it really is important to, once you decide that, you know, this is a person that I love and I can live with, then go for it. And, you know, you never know what living with them means if you're waiting for marriage. You know, we're just barely, just barely beginning now to, um, when we get home after this Europe trip, we'll really be serious about getting into the promotion and discussion and talk shows and so on about this new book, The Eight Myths of Marriaging. And already we're getting some questions and someone asked the other day, well, look, you know, there's these eight myths, I understand. But what's the real bottom line? If you had to boil it all down to one thing, you know, what's the common thread that runs through all these myths and runs through all the accompanying or counterpoint truths? And it just occurred to me, and we'd been thinking about this as we were writing too, that if you had to boil it down to one word, the word really is commitment. That is such an incredibly powerful word in this world. And we live in a time when commitment People are afraid of it, and people avoid it consciously. You know, I, we've run into people, particularly in the millennial generation, who essentially say, every time I make a commitment, it takes away part of my freedom. 
Every time I make a commitment of any kind, whether it's a work commitment or a relationship commitment, it begins to undermine my freedom. It takes away one of my options. And that's such a dangerous kind of thinking because human beings, I just, I'm, you know, I don't want to be too philosophical here, but I just think we are made in a way and we live in a society that sort of demands commitments if we're going to have a clear path. If we're going to be useful in the world, there have to be some commitments and commitments always come with sacrifice. And this is the most obvious of the eight myths on that, that there are two ways to be together. One is with commitment and one is without commitment. And that one little factor makes all the difference because Giving up is so much easier when there's no commitment. Um, Second-guessing yourself is so much easier when there's no commitment. And that's why so many relationships go bad. What we have to understand is that all relationships have their ups and downs. And if the commitment is strong enough, you, be, you tend to have this perspective, well, we're a little downer now, let's figure out how to get out of it, let's climb back up. And it's just a progress. And you, you almost get to the point where relationship problems become stepping stones because you learn from each one and your relationship gets stronger. That's if the commitment is there. If it isn't there, then each of those little tough times becomes potentially an excuse to disengage. Yeah, but you know, Richard, sometimes I wish we had people who could call in with questions while we're doing these because every situation is so different. And one of the questions in our audience this week was, I have a friend who is in a marriage and it's very destructive, both partners, and it's starting to affect the kids. The kids, the kids are right, seeing how this right. is going. And uh, what do you suggest in a situation like that? And uh, of course, we can't give a solid answer because we don't know enough of the details, but why don't you indicate Well, no, I think that's a really good point, honey. And of course, you have to be careful or you start judging. And what I tend to do if I'm not careful is I say, well, the commitment probably wasn't strong enough. So there was probably infidelity or there was this or that going on. And so the lack of commitment is what got this couple to where they are. But we don't know that. Of course not. There are some marriages that uh, shouldn't have ever happened. No question about it. They're, they're, they were just wrong from the beginning. And there are marriages that are so toxic and so abusive, abusive yeah. that it's affecting the kids negatively and it's affecting both people negatively. So this is the last thing we're saying is that there should never be a divorce. What we're talking about, I think, honey, correct me if you see it differently, but we're talking about how to make your relationship with a person you love, how to maximize the chances that it will endure and grow stronger over the years, right? Right. And sometimes you can uh, love people and not like them very much. You know, we've gone, both of us, I'm sure, have gone Absolutely. through eras like that. And... Um, but the bottom line for us is just that we have always loved each other. But wow, you know, every situation is different and you've got to assess it according to um, the real needs of the family. There's some very interesting writing that maybe some of you have come across about the feelings people have five years after a divorce. And again, I want to be careful how I say this because we're not suggesting that divorce should never happen. But it's amazing how many people five years out wish they could go back and try again. Not all, not all, 
But some have now remarried and found the second marriage harder than the first. And some, some have gone back to the first marriage. We've some actually have. Yeah, like that that's right. Year. They've actually gone back. So I guess all we're saying is, you know, as you evaluate your relationship, whether you're married now or whether you're thinking of marriage, just remember that the bottom line, the single factor that probably gives that relationship the best chance of enduring is this wonderful thing we call commitment. And when it's really there and it's really strong, it doesn't guarantee that things will work out, but it maximizes the chances that they will. And again, we talked a little, Linda, about recommitment. And we were in Hawaii a few weeks ago and we were at a hotel where they had a little wedding chapel <laughs> out on the ocean. It was beautiful. And actually in Dominican Republic, we saw that too, just right near where we were staying. And most of the people coming there were not getting married. They were remaking, what do they call it? They were uh, redoing their vows. Yeah. They were. I'm not sure it's a re redo, but it's a re something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not a bad idea to say, you know, are we as committed as we could be? What have we learned from our first 10 years of marriage or whatever? How can we strengthen our commitment? And how can that make us both better as marriage partners? Right, and this is for those of you not who've just been married five or 10 years, but going on and beyond. I mean, we're up to 50 now, and I was just telling somebody this week, you know, after 40, I decided to quit wishing that Richard would change and just embrace it. <laughs> <laughs> because there are some things that are just never going to change. And the minute you did that, I started magically changing in your eyes, right? Right, right. <laughs> Well, um, it's such a wonderful thing to contemplate relationships and marriage. We know a lot of you are listening who wish you were married. You wish you'd find the right person. And we wish the best to you. We wish the best to those of you who are struggling with your marriage right now. We even wish the best to those of you who are still so new in marriage that everything seems perfect and you're seeing the world through rose-colored glasses. It won't always be that way. You'll have down times. Right. You'll be ready for them. And we wish the best for those who are wonderful people who are cohabiting and just um, having reservations about making that commitment. Because especially for children, if the children are involved, it is just so crucial for children, I, I think, yes. to have uh, both parents committed to each other. So we're, we're just loving London. Just we want to end on a little bit of a travel log. We're, we're here for another few days. We're going to go to the first two days of Wimbledon. Some of you know how much we both love tennis. Uh, we're going to see if Roger Federer can win his 21st major title. Speaking of marriage, by the way, there's a good marriage. Roger and Mirka and their four children, little boy twins and little girl twins. Right. They're fantastic. They do have a really <laughs> blessed life, though. They have a jet and, they, and a nanny and a tutor, and they jet around to all the different tournaments and stay together all the time. And Serena's married now. Truly, she's got a she's got a family. baby. Maybe, yeah. maybe both champions will be married people. I want to tie right into our book. Wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> would that be great? Um, I'm not sure she's married, but anyway, it really is um, a wonderful thing to be here in London. Honestly, we adore it so much. As many of you listeners know, we were here. Um, 40 years ago and lived for three years and came back another two years. We really love it here. 
We love being on the podcast with you each week. Join us next time on Ayers on the Road for Marriage Myth Number 7. We hope you'll be there. See you soon.